we had this reading from Psalm 11, and I feel the need to at least say, as you look at your handout, if you picked up one of the worship guides on the way in, you notice that this says this is part of a series called Life in Christ, the 13th sermon in this series. And you may say, well, what, what is that? I don't remember us preaching through that series. This is a, just a little series that we do, uh, just kind of runs as we go, and, and from time to time we have a sermon that belongs to it, and it's really just looking at what it means to live as a Christian. And so we're specifically looking at today at how testing is for our good and being tested as a follower of Christ, is something that happens for all of us. And that's what we're going to see this morning. If you're interested in hearing some of the other messages we've preached in this series, it's on our website, and you can go out. They're all archived there. But we started with Psalm 11, which was a song of David. And in this particular passage of Psalm 11, David writes this at a time of crisis a time of danger, and we don't really know what's happening in his life that caused him to feel the way that he does, but what it says is that it is an occasion in which evil is attacking good, in which he feels like the wicked are threatening to destroy that which is righteous. And in his depth of sorrow and maybe even anxiety, he writes this song. And he opens it up talking about how the natural inclination that we have when we are faced with a crisis or with danger is to flee, to run, um, to escape. And he asks a question. After all, what security does the righteous person have? What can we do? And then, as all good Psalms, David answers his own question. And in the rest of the psalm, he unfolds that it is the Lord in which we find our security. It is God who loves us and who cares for His people, those who are righteous. David says, God sees what is happening. His gaze is upon all people, those who belong to Him and those who do not. God is watching And there's not a question of whose side he's on. When it comes to good and evil, wicked and righteous, God very clearly is on the side of His people, those who seek His righteousness. And His face is against those who are evil. And eventually, He will destroy all wickedness. And he will save all who are righteous. And in the midst of this song, David puts a very interesting statement. Verse 5. And he talks about how God tests His people. How He examines His people. When it comes to the threats that we face in this world, the crisis that we may have to go through, the danger that we face. God uses those threats as a way of testing us. And while that may not be a thought that makes us willing and happy to go through hard times, the reality is God doesn't waste anything in the life of His children. He doesn't 
even waste a threat to our safety. He doesn't waste times of difficulty. He uses them to test us. If you have one of your worship guides, look at this life truth that we have for this morning, kind of a summary of what we're going to be talking about today. God tests His people. What does that mean that God tests His people? In the Bible, the word test has kind of two meanings to it. One, it means to prove the true nature of an object. So when you're testing something in a biblical sense, you are showing or proving whether or not it is genuine. And the other definition of test can mean to refine an object, to make it more pure. And I believe that when the Bible talks about God testing His people, that both of these definitions apply. That He tests us first to prove our faith. Now, I don't believe God tests us to prove our faith to Him. Because God already knows what's in a man. He already knows what's in our heart. He knows whether or not the faith that we have is genuine. Rather, God tests us to prove our faith to ourselves, as well as to demonstrate its genuineness to other people. You remember how we've talked before in the teachings of Jesus, how He often used these agricultural illustrations. And one of them that He used was how living in this world is like a field, and in the field grow wheat and weed. And wheat represents the children of God, and weed represents those who do not belong to God. And one of the things that Jesus said in this teaching or parable was, you often can't tell the difference. Sometimes wheat and weed are not distinguishable between one another. And so where this owner had this field of wheat and weed and the servants came and said, do you want us to go and rip up all the weeds? And he said, no, because in doing so you might damage the wheat. So just leave them and I'll sort it out. Testing is a separating tool that God uses for wheat and weed. I said this last week, trials, problems, difficulties, testings do one of two things for us. They cause us to flee to God or they cause us to flee from God. Those who are truly righteous in the midst of their difficulties, they run to God as their refuge. They may lament to Him about their troubles They cry out to Him in sorrow. They ask for His intervention. But they want to draw close to Him in refuge. The Bible also says that persecution and difficulties become the reason some people fall away. Because they weren't true believers. But that was not shown until a time of testing. So testing proves our faith. But testing also is used by God to refine us. When you, or if you were to get a tool to look at some of the New Testament Greek words, you would see that the word for refine means to smelt. Don't know if you know what it means to smelt. I had to look it up, so I did not. But 
The smelting process is a process that is used to get valuable metal out of rock or ore. So silver comes from ore, and the way that that happens is a process called smelting. And what is involved in that process is partly a heating up of the mineral or the ore in order to gain or extract from it precious metal. And that is the word that God uses in His Scriptures to define what testing does for believers. It smelts us. We are heated up in times of testing. We see our impurities. We see our character defects. We see what needs to change in our lives. And God uses these times of testing to refine our character, our hearts. There is not a person in here, I'll be bold and just make this statement, there's not a person in here that enjoys going through difficult times. Nobody wakes up and says, man, I I really hope I get tested a lot today. (laughs) We We don't think that way. But you would not be a mature believer without testing. You cannot become like Christ without testing. Because it is a path that God uses to bring out of us His character. He uses times of heating up, of testing, to prove our faith as well as to refine our faith. And the Bible links times of testing to something we call trials. The Bible puts trials and testing together. The Greek word in the New Testament for trial literally means a putting to proof. So when you're going through a trial or you're going through a process in which God is putting you to the test, He's putting you to proof. And Scripture shows that times of testing comes for all believers and that it's good for us. I'll give you a couple of passages. One, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. You can make a note for these. I think they're in your outline. But James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not what we do when we meet trials. We don't say, oh, this is joy. But the Bible says we should. We should count it joy. Why? Because, James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So one of the ways that God brings our spiritual maturity to perfection is through times of trial. 1 Peter chapter 1 says something similar. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuine so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. God uses trials, if necessary, in our lives to show that our faith is genuine and to bring out of us praise. When I read this scripture, I immediately thought of the five people who boldly stood up here last week and gave a testimony. 
And, and I have heard from multiple people this week how much those testimonies meant to them. And, and they were testimonies that had a key characteristic in all of them. A time of testing that the people had went through. A time of trial that the people had went through. And how God had used that to refine them and bring good to them. And at the same time, it dawned on me that for all of us, we were able to see the genuine nature of their faith. Because they did not fall away in those times of trial. But rather, they drew closer to God because of them. So in this life truth, trials are opportunities to learn if we will seek to perceive and obey God in them. Trials become opportunities for you and I to learn if we will seek to perceive and obey God in the midst of them. If you have a Bible... Um, if you would go to Mark chapter 8, this is also in your worship guide. This is the text that we're going to look at this morning that Lamar read for us to start the day off. And I want to give you a little backstory from Mark 8, what is happening preceding these passages. First of all, we have one of the miraculous feedings that Jesus did where he fed 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. Now, there's another, maybe more well-known miracle of Jesus in which he fed almost 20,000 people, 5,000 men and then women and children, perhaps up to 20,000 people with a few small loaves and some fish. But this is a secondary time that Jesus did this miracle, and we're told he fed 4,000 people. And he did so very much like the first one. These people had been with him for a few days, listening to his teaching. And Jesus said, I have compassion on them because they don't have anything to eat. They've been here with us and going through teaching for three days and we need to feed them. And if we send them on their way, they might not make it. And the disciples, of course, say, well, what are we supposed to do? Jesus asked them, well, what do you have? And it's very interesting that they ask that question because I think when we read these, if you consider there's already been a miracle that Jesus did in feeding 20,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish, and then they get into another situation just like that but with a smaller group, you would think they would just look to Jesus and say, oh, you're going to do what you did before, right? We'll give you what we got and you're going to take care of it. But they, they didn't. They said the same thing they said the first time. Well, what do we do? And I think it's easy for us to kind of pronounce judgment upon the disciples for that, but how many times do we ourselves see God come through miraculously time and time again for us, but then when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, we think, yeah, but what what about now? Are, Are you going to do this again? Can you do this again? Will you do this again? So Jesus feeds these 4,000, and then immediately after that, in verse 11 of Mark 8, He has an encounter with some of the Pharisees. They come to argue with Him. They come to seek from Him a sign from heaven to test Him, 
Now, we're talking today about how God tests us. But in this case, the Pharisees wanted to be God, and they wanted to test Jesus. And they demanded from Him, as they often did, a sign. When we went through the Gospel of John, you may remember, we talked about a sign is not just a miracle. It is a miracle that points to a greater truth. So when Jesus changed water to wine, it wasn't just a miraculous act, but it was a miraculous act that showed people He was the provider of new wine in the new covenant. Their demanding of Jesus, prove to us that you're God's Son. And Jesus knows that there's nothing that He can do or will do to prove to them who He is because their hearts are hardened. They don't want to know the truth. They want to prove that He's a fraud so they can be rid of Him. And Jesus says to them, after sighing deeply in His Spirit, that is a sign of great mourning that Jesus felt toward these Pharisees demanding of Him a sign. He sighs deeply in His Spirit and He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, no sign will be given. And He left them. In other words... There's nothing left for you. I have told you judgment is coming. There's nothing that I can show you where you will listen to me. And he departed from them. And this encounter is probably still on Jesus' mind and heart as him and his disciples continue their journey. And that is where we get to the passage from this morning. And we're told Mark makes the statement that they had forgotten to bring bread. So they've gotten out of the boat uh, in which they had traveled, and now they're journeying. And as they go into one of these journeys, and often these were long journeys, they realized we didn't bring any bread. Someone says, do we have any in the boat? And they say, well, we only have one loaf. It's not enough. Jesus, perhaps overhearing this, we're not exactly sure, but Jesus cautions them. Maybe He uses this as a moment of illustration, or maybe He's just trying to get their attention, but Jesus says to them, watch out, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And you're not going to understand, we're not going to understand what's happening in this passage unless we understand leaven which is, in a physical sense, it's fermented dough, small amount that you put into other dough to ferment it and to help in the process of baking bread. But leaven, in a biblical sense, means a corrupting evil influence. When leaven is used in the Bible, it's talking about a corrupting evil influence that enters a person's life. And here's the point. It only has to be a little just a small amount of wickedness, just a small amount of evil, just a small amount of compromise, just a small amount of corruption will quickly work its way through our lives in the same way that leaven quickly works through dough. We are called to be unleavened People without corrupting influences. First Corinthians 6 says that. 
that we are to be unleavened believers living in sincerity and truth. And so Jesus is warning them, guys, beware of the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. Guys, beware of a hardened heart. Beware of pride. Beware of the pride of life and the unwillingness to listen that caused Herod to take the head of John the Baptist who was preaching the gospel. Beware of the self-righteousness and self-reliance and hypocrisy of the Pharisees that want to look good on the outside, but inside they are totally corrupt. Beware of a religion that is all about external rule-keeping and not about your heart toward God and toward others. Beware of that, men. My time is coming. I am going to go to the cross. I will not be here with you. You are going to be the leaders of the church. Beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. How do they respond? They keep talking about the fact they have no bread. They go back to discussing, we don't have any bread. Now, again, Maybe it's a little easy to think we would not be as foolish as those disciples, but we should probably say bread's important. And when you're going on a long journey, you need to eat. And in that climate and that day, it could easily get to a place to where you are overtaken by the weakness of your body. And so it's not like they could just go through a drive through or a 7-Eleven and pick up some snacks. So this probably was a deal and an issue. And they're discussing this, which is a word that can mean arguing or wondering. So what may be happening is not only are they talking about the fact that they have no bread and they don't know what they're going to do, but they may actually be pointing fingers. Weren't you supposed to get bread? Didn't we tell you you had one job? Why did you not do this? And Jesus responds to them and says, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Why are you talking about this? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? What I want you to see in this passage is that in the middle of this trial, the disciples are going through. In this time of testing, where they don't have enough bread for their journey, there are two focuses. The focus the disciples have is on their immediate need. We need bread. We don't have any. We're in trouble. Where are we going to get bread? They are anxious and they are worried about their need. And Jesus is focused on something entirely different. He is focused on their character and their heart in the midst of their need. And He is pleading with them 
to perceive the weightier matters. Why are you guys talking about bread and your need for it? And you're not listening to what I am saying. That if you let even the smallest bit of corruption into your life, it will destroy you the way it has the Pharisees. If you let the smallest bit of moral compromise into your life, it can destroy you as it did Herod. Why are you not focused on that? Why will you not learn about the state of your soul? Rather than worry about this need, do you not know that I am the God of the universe and I can give you what you need? I can give you the bread. Do you not remember what I did in the feeding of 5,000 people? Do you not remember what I did in the feeding of the 4,000? Do you not remember that? I can give you your need. Why are you not focused on the thing that most matters? And so how do you and I apply that? Trials are opportunities for us to learn. That's what we said in this life truth. They're opportunities for us to learn about the state or the genuineness of our own faith. They are opportunities for us to learn about the areas of our character and our heart that God needs to work on. And you and I will always be tempted in the midst of a trial to focus on what we need. We may be faced with a trial that involves our finances. Job loss, career. We may be in the midst of a trial that involves a relationship or health problems. We may be in the midst of a trial of danger. We feel like we're being threatened. And we're always going to focus on our need. And sometimes we're so focused on the need that we're asking God, where are you? Why are you not taking care of this? And God focuses more on who we are, our character, our soul, and what we need to learn because God desires for us to be more like Jesus. God wants us to trust Him with the needs and focus on growing spiritually in the midst of a trial. Every trial that you and I face is a chance for us to perceive and obey God. Some trials last longer than others. You will have trials this week. You may have them today. They're not always going to be these long seasons of prolonged difficulty. Sometimes they will be a fleeting thing. You will be presented with a rude person, and that is a moment of difficulty. (laughs) You will be presented with a problem that you didn't even know you have. 
How many times have you, have you just, you're going about your day, everything's fine, you need to run to the store and pick something up, and that is when you discover something's wrong with your car. And it happens in an instant. Trials come every day. In the midst of our families, we say, we say a word with a tone that we shouldn't have used. We lash out in anger. Then we're faced with the trial of how am I going to respond to what I've done and someone else is faced with the trial of how am I going to respond to this person. We're faced with trials every day. Some of them will be more prolonged. They will be more difficult. And if, if I can narrow down what I'm asking of us, it's to get to the point to where we can start trying to perceive God in those. Of taking a step back and saying, God, what are you doing in this? God, where, where are you right now in this? God, what do I need to learn from this? God, I, I want this need met. I, I want this resolved. God, I'm anxious. I'm, I don't know what to do, but God, what do you want me to learn? You could have stopped this if you chose to. You didn't. So what do you want me to learn in the midst of what's happening right now? This week I ask a question of you. If you're on our email list, last Monday I asked of you and I ask it again on Friday. What have you learned from going through the year 2020? What did you learn last year? And I, I received a, a few responses that... Um, very encouraging to me, and, and I could tell people put some thought into that. One person shared that through marriage struggles, through the potential of being passed over for a promotion, through a health issue and a loved one, that the Lord taught them to live joyfully surrendered in a deeper way than they had before. One person told me that God taught them this year most about His love for them and about how He was near them that He had intervened in their life to open their eyes to set them free from a spiritual bondage that they were in, and that He did that before they even realized that they needed to be set free. One person told me that they learned this year that our hope and our peace should not be based on our circumstances, but should be based in Christ and who He is. And they mentioned that in a year when they had been forced to slow down and to isolate more than ever before, that God had shown them they still had so much to be thankful for. One person shared with me that they had learned that their hope, only hope was in Christ and that He was in control of all things. And that they were able to see how trials and struggles from the previous year in 2019, had actually prepared them for what they were going to face in 2020 and allowed them to bring comfort to other people because God had comforted them. So I wanted us to take some time this morning to think through how God uses trials, how He uses testing, and hopefully in that, to create in us a desire to be more perceptive 
of what God is doing in the midst of those times. To learn a little bit more, to step back in the midst of a problem and just ask God, what are, what are you doing? What do you want me to learn from this? What do you want to teach me? And also that we could become more reflective when we go through trials so that we will be better equipped and better ready for what we face in the future. Or maybe even we can learn lessons we need to learn to avoid some trials. And I think it is within reason for us to understand that if we don't learn the lesson the first time, God may have to continually bring a trial until we learn. So I want to take a few minutes in ending to think through 2020 and ask this question of us. What is it that we can learn and apply from last year to help us in this year? A lot of times in the beginning of the year, we go through, in in church settings, we'll go through vision sermons. We're not doing that this year. What we are doing is thinking through our character. What have we learned from what we've been through? And how is that needed? How do we apply that for what's upcoming? You know, it's the new year and, and there's always that idea of, okay, 2020 is over. You're seeing this a lot, right? 2021's here. It's going to be much better. Nothing really changed at midnight the other night. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm just telling you like, nothing, nothing really changed. Okay, like, so we're going to have trials this year. I, 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 I again, um, I'm not trying to make anyone run out of here expecting a Joel Osteen sermon or something this morning. I'm just saying we're going to face some difficulties. We're going to face some problems. But the question really is, are we going to learn the lessons from last year that we might be able to rightly apply them to this year? I wrote down four things. Now, my prayer is that you would reflect, if you haven't already, on last year, and you would think through as some of the people who emailed me did, God, what do you want me to learn from that? But there are four things that I feel like we need to have learned as a church, and we need to be ready to apply these in the new year. Number one, As a child of God, your life is not in the hands of chance or fate or forces of evil, other people or mistakes. Your life belongs to Christ alone. He is sovereign over your life. And part of the reason that I wanted to share this one was a headline that I read this week. I'm going to read you the headline that I read, the way that it was written on the news site. This is what the headline said. They did everything right, but after one at-home haircut, a husband and wife died of COVID-19.
I want to say to us that that is not how Scripture presents our lives. The Bible does not show us that if we make one mistake, one lapse of judgment, one error, one wrong choice, one unwise decision, that it could all be over. The Bible shows us our lives are in the hands of Christ alone. If you have a chance, read Psalm 139. We're not going to read it this morning. But write that down. And I want you to see in Psalm 139 the intimacy of David's relationship with God. And how David writes about how God cares for him and knows everything about him and every step that he takes and every thought that he has and every tendency that he has. And that David says, my days are known and numbered and planned before I was ever born. The Bible presents to us God as sovereign over our lives. And listen... Sometimes we don't want to preach that and present that because it presents difficulties. Because people do go through hard things, people do get sick, and people do die. And so it's as if we want to let God off the hook from that. But God didn't ask to be let off the hook from that. He declares over and over that He is sovereign. Now in saying that, I do not want you to arrive at the conclusion that the sovereignty of God means we live recklessly. It doesn't. I believe in the sovereignty of God over every life. I believe in the sovereignty of God over my life. But I will put a seatbelt on when I go somewhere. And the reason for that is because the Bible shows us that God puts people and laws over us for our good, and He exercises His sovereignty through natural means and unnatural or supernatural means. So God will exercise His sovereign hand over our lives, and He may use the grace of a seatbelt or medicine or wise choices in a pandemic, or He may use supernatural protection. The point is not live recklessly. The point is live courageously. Don't be controlled by fear. Your life is not in the hands of chance or fate or one single mistake. Your life is in the hands of a sovereign God. So be wise, but be courageous. Number two, acute suffering and oppression is the normal way of life for many people. How many of us have said, I just want things to go back to normal. I just want things to go back to the way they were. And it's not as if our lives were perfect before because they weren't. But we say we want to return to normal because for the most part, we liked our normal. 
But church, the reality is the suffering that we have faced this year, the oppression some of us have felt, the danger from sickness and disease and poverty, that is the normal for the majority of the world. They don't have the hope of returning to something the way it used to be because that's the way it was always for them. Psalm 10 talks about how in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And Psalm 10 talks about how God, in light of that, does justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. And so church, my application to us is understanding what we've went through in 2020 and understanding that the majority of the world live like that all the time. You and I must pray to be a church that does justice, that cares for suffering people and seeks to be a solution to that. We must pray that we can look at all of the ministries we have in this church, many of which got paused this year, and we can look at them in a new light to say, how do we work for justice where God has placed us and even beyond? And I want to remind you that we have set before this church a prayer that God would once again raise up families as He has before who would do justice through the operation of foster care and adoption. And not only have we asked people to pray for that, but we've created a fund in our budget to actually help fund an adoption or foster care in this church for families in this church who feel called to that. And that is one way in which we will work for justice, but there must be many more. Number three, reflecting on what we have learned this year, we have learned to strive for unity in the church. We have learned that the striving of unity must happen, even amidst confusion and differences of opinions and views and questions. The striving for unity is non-negotiable. One of the people that wrote me this week said that they learned this year every person doesn't think and act like me. And we're called to love one another despite our differences. It doesn't matter all the issues we face this year politically, racially, pandemic, All of these, how we respond, what we do, so much division, even in the church. And we have learned we must strive for unity. Whether or not we believe any one individual that it's the right thing or the wrong thing to social distance and wear a mask is a, it's not even a secondary issue. It's way down the list. And it is nothing the church must divide over. Because we are called to love each other and strive for unity even in our differences. So we make allowances for each other. We love each other well no matter what. Because Jesus gave us a command. He said a new command. 
Love one another as I have loved you. And he said that it is the oneness of the church that would be the proof of our discipleship. And so if we lose our oneness, we lose our proof. We've learned that this year. And it will be tested again next year. And finally, number four, we have learned in 2020 that the community of faith is essential. If you know me, you know that I've taken the pandemic seriously. Maybe more serious than some of you thought that I should. And I believe the physical impacts of it are real. And we felt that even in this church. But I want to say to you this morning that isolation from the fellowship of the believers is as dangerous spiritually as the pandemic is physically. And we are seeing that. It is not as easily visible as the numbers on the screen that show the deaths. But we are beginning to see the impact of people being isolated from a community of faith. And this is not me saying, gather in person or live stream. I'm not, I'm not getting into that discussion this morning. What I am saying is that it is essential that we be with other believers. It is essential that we have communion and community with other believers. And if that means we have to get over the fact that we don't like FaceTime and Zoom and we don't like to talk on the phone and we've got to get over that to have daily conversations or if we have to be bold in gathering in wise ways, we can no longer pretend that it's not essential to be with other believers. Because God says it's the exhortation from other Christians that is protection from the deception of sin. So church, don't you know that the enemy of our souls wants to keep us from one another and he wants to put it under the guise of being the best thing for us? And it's not. And so we're going to think through this beginning next week. This is how we're going to begin our year. We're going to go through a message series on Sundays reminding ourselves of biblical community, rooted and growing in Christ as a church. And we're going to go back over and maybe even look at some new principles of community that God lays out for us in Scripture to remind ourselves of how important they are. And it doesn't mean we don't use tools to gather, but it means we must come up with ways to be with one another. Not just to hang out, but to be together in fellowship. John, you can come up. This morning, I want us to end in a time of prayer and reflection. We're going to do a couple of prayer groups up front and give you an opportunity to engage in prayer if you need to receive it. If you're on live stream, if you have a prayer request, you can send that to us. Nick will place the number in the chat. You can text us a prayer need that you have. We'll pray for it. If you don't join one of the prayer groups up front, please pray where you are. 
But one of the things that I want to ask of you this morning is to consider the state of your heart before God. When that Psalm 11 that we opened with this morning talked about the righteous and the wicked, we need to be reminded that none of us are righteous. That we have no righteousness of our own. We need the righteousness of Jesus. But it is offered to us in faith. And so I want to ask you this morning, as I do every week, I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you come to church. I'm not asking you if you have a Bible. I am asking you, have you given your sins to Jesus and asked Him to forgive you? Have you been baptized as a profession of faith in Him? And are you following Him in submission to His Word? And if not, God has ordained for you to be here today and to hear that and want to respond. And I ask you, do not leave here today without speaking to someone. It can be me, it can be Nick, it can be John. If you come up to me, just let me know. God's doing something in my life. I need to talk about where I am spiritually. And I will get your number and we will make time to talk this week. Perceive what He's doing. Beware of even the smallest amount of compromise. And ask Him to grow you that we might be better and brighter beacons of light in the world.